Well, good morning. It's great to see you. Glad you were with us. And parents uh, who are in town for uh, Duke Parent Weekend, Family Weekend, glad you're here. Those of you who ran maybe the 5K half marathon and you, you've made it, uh, that was going on down there. Those of you who survived the traffic to get here, uh, we're glad you're here. This morning, uh, we are in the book of Exodus, uh, and I've loved studying and preaching through Exodus this fall. It is an incredible story, this epic journey of redemption for Israel. And like many great stories, it's full of characters, kings, princes, masters, and slaves. But there's one character in this story that, that makes it truly amazing, and that's the Lord our God. He is the one throughout Exodus that has been hearing the cries of his people who is listening to the voices of the oppressed, the one who is at work leading his people from slavery to salvation. But God's not just a character in this story. He's the author, the producer, and the director. And this story of Exodus is our story as Christians. God is writing, producing, and directing our story. And within Exodus, I don't know if there's another event in Jewish history that has more defined Israel as the people of God than the miracle at the Red Sea. And the Bible gives the Red Sea story as a paradigm for Christians to understand our story. See that in Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 10. So I'm going to read a very long portion of Scripture this morning. I'm going to ask you to bear with me because I I couldn't take pieces of the story out. I'm going to read all of Exodus chapter 14. Uh, And if you are able, I'm going to ask you to stand as I read the entirety of Exodus chapter 14. This is God's word to us this morning. Then the Lord said to Moses, Tell the people of Israel to turn back and encamp in front of Pi-Haharoth, between Migdal and the sea, in front of Baal-Zephon. You shall encamp facing it by the sea. For Pharaoh will save the people of Israel. They are wandering in... Uh, They are wandering in the land, the wilderness has shut them in, and I will harden Pharaoh's heart, and he will pursue them, and I will get glory over Pharaoh and all his host, and the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord, and they did so. When the king of Egypt was told that the people had fled, the mind of Pharaoh and his servants was changed toward the people, and they said, what is this we have done, that we have let Israel go from serving us? So he made ready his chariot, and took his army with him, and took six hundred chosen chariots, and all the other chariots of Egypt with officers over all of them. And the Lord hardened the heart of Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and he pursued the people of Israel while the people of Israel were going out defiantly. The Egyptians pursued them, all of Pharaoh's horses and chariots and his horsemen and his army, and overtook them and camped at the sea by Piharoth in front of Baal-Zephon. When Pharaoh drew near, the people of Israel lifted up their eyes, and behold, the Egyptians were marching after them, and they feared greatly. And the people of Israel cried out to the Lord. They said to Moses, Is it because there are no graves in Egypt that you have taken us away to die in the wilderness? What have you done to us in bringing us out of Egypt? Is not this what we said to you in Egypt? Leave us alone that we may serve the Egyptians? For it would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the wilderness. And Moses said to the people, Fear not, stand firm, and see the salvation of the Lord, which he will work for you today. For the Egyptians whom you see today, you shall never see again. The Lord will fight for you, and you have only to be silent. The Lord said to Moses, Why do you cry to me? Tell the people of Israel to go forward. Lift up your staff and stretch out your hand over the sea and divide it, that the people of Israel may go through the sea on dry ground. 
And I will harden the hearts of the Egyptians so that they shall go in after them. And I will get glory over Pharaoh and all his hosts, his chariots, and his horsemen. And the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord when I've gotten glory over Pharaoh, his chariots, and his horsemen. Then the angel of God who was going before the host of Israel moved and went behind them. And the pillar of cloud moved from before them and stood behind them, coming between the host of Egypt and the host of Israel. And there was the cloud in the darkness, and it lit up the night without one coming near the other all night. Then Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and the Lord drove the sea back by a strong east wind all night and made the sea dry land, and the waters were divided. And the people of Israel went into the midst of the sea on dry ground, the waters being a wall to them on their right hand and on their left. The Egyptians pursued and went in after them into the midst of the sea, all Pharaoh's horses, his chariots, and his horsemen. And in the morning... And in the morning watch, the Lord in the pillar of fire and of cloud looked down on the Egyptian forces and threw the Egyptian forces into a panic, clogging their chariot wheels so that they drove heavily. And the Egyptians said, Let us flee from before Israel, for the Lord fights for them against the Egyptians. Then the Lord said to Moses, Stretch out your hand over the sea, that the water may come back upon the Egyptians, upon their chariots, and upon their horsemen. So Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and the sea returned to its normal course when the morning appeared. And as the Egyptians fled into it, the Lord threw the Egyptians into the midst of the sea. The waters returned and covered the chariots and the horsemen. Of all the hosts of Pharaoh that had followed them into the sea, not one of them remained. But the people of Israel walked on dry ground through the sea, the waters being a wall to them on their right hand and on their left. Thus the Lord saved Israel that day from the hand of the Egyptians. And Israel saw the Egyptians dead on the seashore. Israel saw the great power that the Lord used against the Egyptians So the people feared the Lord, and they believed in the Lord and in his servant Moses. Isaiah tells us the grass withers, the flowers fade, but God's word endures forever. Let's pray. God, this is a a, a very powerful story of of the power of a God who delivers and offers salvation. God, I pray that this morning we would hear you speak so that we would experience your salvation and your deliverance. Remove me so that Christ is exalted in this place, that our minds would be illumined, our hearts stirred, or we would leave this place willing to walk in the truths and having encountered you this morning. Thank you that you're with us. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen. You can be seated. I don't know why, but uh, I feel like... I've been reading a lot of stories lately of, of copperheads biting people. I have no idea why, but I, seriously, I've, I feel like I'm reading story after story, whether it be in the news or on Facebook or on a neighborhood listserv in Durham, uh, copperheads biting people. I hate snakes. Uh, in my mind, there's no such thing as a good snake, uh, much less a copperhead. Uh, I think I, a few weeks back I had a nightmare uh, of a what do you call a host of snakes, a group of, uh, a herd of snakes? What do you call that? I have no idea, but I had a lot of snakes chasing me in my dreams, and I woke up in a panic. I do not like snakes. Uh, and, and a few weeks ago, I was, I was reading a story about three siblings in Birmingham, Alabama. There was a, a girl, eight years old, and she had two younger siblings, and they were playing in the woods near a local elementary school, and all of a sudden, this eight-year-old girl sees a copperhead right near her and her siblings. And she feels trapped. Uh, She, of course, wants to run, 
as I would want to run. <laughs> uh, as a 39-year-old man, I can't imagine as an 8-year-old girl. But, but she knows she can't leave her two younger siblings. And so she jumps in front of her siblings, in between them and this copperhead, and she yells, run, go, run. And her siblings take off, and while they are running, she gets struck twice, delivering her two young siblings from this attack of a copperhead. All of Birmingham read about it. People around our country read about it, this story of deliverance. Earlier in the 9 a.m. service, uh, Bonnie Cecil stood up and shared about uh, this past week, the news of over 100 being delivered from sex trafficking this past week. There's stories of deliverance. Can you think of a time that you've experienced deliverance? You ever been in a situation and you've wondered, how in the world am I going to get out of this? A situation where you feel trapped, that your back's against the wall, and you're asking, how can this situation change? And your only hope is to be delivered. Perhaps it's been a diagnosis of cancer. Perhaps it's been a diagnosis of cancer from someone you love or for someone you love. Maybe it's been from addiction. Maybe it's been from an abusive relationship. I I don't know about you, but my heart has been heavy all week seeing the Me Too's plastered on Facebook. These abusive relationships. You've longed for deliverance. Maybe it's been from a rocky and downward spiraling marriage. Maybe it's from a financial situation. But we all need deliverance. Israel needed deliverance. They were in bondage and slavery for 430 years in Egypt. In Exodus chapter 14, they experienced deliverance through the Red Sea. And the Christian life is a story of deliverance. So I'm going to make two points this morning about deliverance. The first is that deliverance is from an impossible situation. From an impossible situation. The first thing about this impossible situation is that it's God orchestrated. I didn't read Exodus chapter 13, but in Exodus chapter 13, as Israel is uh, journeying towards the promised land, they go by God's directive through Moses to journey the way of the wilderness towards the Red Sea. There was a much more direct route to the promised land. It was by the way of the sea. There was a coastal highway. Israel could have arrived in the promised land in less than two weeks. Rather, they spent 40 years in the wilderness. It was a much shorter way, but it wasn't God's way. God knew they needed to take the long road home. Who in here likes taking the longest road? Who likes to just wander around on the, on the longest journey? Well, nobody in here. We want the fastest, clearest, cleanest path. Or else it feels like we're just wasting our time. Israel's on the longest road to the promised land. Then in Exodus chapter 14, verses 1 to 4, we read along this long road, God gives them a detour. He tells them to camp between the desert and the Red Sea. Now, this was just straight crazy. Sheer lunacy, because this put Israel in a completely vulnerable, vulnerable position. They're out on the Egyptian frontier, surrounded by a desert, and their backs are against the Red Sea. This was the worst military position they could have been in. It made no sense for God to tell them to go this way. There was no exit for them. Our life 
is a long and winding road. It is a journey in the wilderness. And there will be time upon time in our lives when we feel trapped and hemmed in in some impossible situation. But you need to know this, that that does not mean God is not leading you. He is leading you and he is with you. Israel was in an impossible situation, but God was orchestrating their deliverance. Verse 4 tells us so that God would gain the glory. Second thing about this impossible situation is that there's real fear. There's real fear here. God struck Egypt with ten plagues. Egyptians are like, had enough, let's let Israel go. So so they let him go. In verses 5 to 9, of our passage, after they leave, Pharaoh and his advisors kind of gather together and, and they say, what are we thinking? What are we thinking? We had an entire labor force, cheap labor. We've destroyed our economy. We need to go reclaim and enslave Israel again. We need to go capture them. E- Egypt was the most powerful nation in their time. They had the most powerful army. They had the most advanced military equipment with the elitist of troops. They had the most modern weapon, the chariot. Chariot was a killing machine. So Pharaoh sends his most elite, his fittest, with hundreds of chariots to go and capture Israel. And Israel, at this point, they're around 2 million people. But that's counting old men and old women and women carrying babies and families carrying household items. And all of a sudden, here comes the most powerful, most elite most advanced army. Verse 10 says, When Pharaoh drew near, the people of Israel lifted up their eyes, and behold, the Egyptians were marching after them, and they feared greatly. Sometimes fear is irrational, but this threat for Israel is real. Their fear is real. A vast army about to destroy them. When we find ourselves in situations that we cannot control, Situations that we cannot maneuver our way out of by our own intellect or by our own resources, by our own power. Fear is real. Fear is real. I I don't know if there's a day that goes by that, in honesty, I don't operate at some level by fear. You know, fear reveals what we cherish the most. Whatever you're afraid of reveals that that which you cling to. Your fears reveal that which is your idol, your deepest love. And there was an article uh, written about Mariah Carey. Who, uh, I did not know this about Mariah Carey, but she's the third most successful artist. I guess that's maybe like grossing, m- money-grossing artist. Uh, she's behind the Beatles and Michael Jackson. And in this article, Mariah Carey said, I could have 1,000 arenas sold out, but one column of critique slays me. Like I, can, I read that. I, was like, I can relate to that. I can preach 1,000 sermons, and then I can receive one email critiquing my sermon, and it can undo me. And that's not because of the critique. It, it reveals my heart. It reveals my fear. Fear of not preaching a good sermon. Fear of not preaching a true sermon. Fear of not being liked. Fear of failure as a pastor. Israel, in their fear, ultimately cries out to the Lord. Verse 10, Lord, help us. 
our fears, when we're honest about them, can lead us to the Lord. In fact, the Lord has us in these impossible situations in our lives where our backs are against the wall to reveal our fears in order to let us see our deepest loves so that we ultimately turn to trust in God rather than trusting ourselves and our success or our relationships or our finances, you name it. Real fear is a part of being delivered from an impossible situation. The last thing about this impossible situation is the mental state of Israel that I think gives insight into our own mental state. Look at verse 11 to 12. Uh, Israel says this to Moses, Is it because there are no graves in Egypt that you have taken us to die in the wilderness? (laughs) This is Jewish comedy. Uh, This is uh, sarcasm. Before sarcasm became like culturally funny and hip and cool, like there were tons of graves in Egypt. Israel is being sarcastic. And then they say, what have you done to us in bringing us out of Egypt? Is this not what we said? Leave us in Egypt? Leave us alone? It's better to serve in Egypt than to die in the wilderness? Israel turns on their spiritual leader Moses because their expectations are not met. They would rather go back to Egypt. Now Egypt may, may not have been that good, but At least for Israel, it was familiar. Wandering in the wilderness, it's full of risks. They'd rather return to their chains than trust their God in the unknown. When we find ourselves in these impossible situations, and fear is real and fear is great, we can begin to question God. God, what are you doing? God, I would have rather. God, would you just let me be? And then this temptation comes to just go back to our former way of life. Go back to our old self, to our our sinful patterns, to, to the things that have enslaved us because at least they're familiar. At least we've felt them helping us cope in some way when we feel fear. Sometimes it feels easier to go back to our old ways of life than it is to trust God in the unknown. Look at verses 13 to 14. I've got to be honest, before this week, verses 13 to 14 had not exploded into my, into my mind and my heart like they did this week. I, I love verses 13 to 14. Listen to verses 13 to 14. Moses said to the people, Fear not. Stand firm and see the salvation of the Lord, which he will work for you today. For the Egyptians whom you see today, you shall never see again. The Lord will fight for you. And you have only to be silent. Fear not. Stand firm. See the salvation of the Lord. Fear not. Stand still. And behold God's salvation. This is so different than what we normally say as we face our fears in these impossible situations. We say things like, step it up. Figure it out. You've got this. Moses says, the Lord will fight for you. All you need to do is be silent. Being still and being silent may be the hardest thing for us to be and do. Because it means you have to stop and wait. And to be still, that's not some precious moment called to be still. This is God saying, sit down, shut up, I've got you, I've got this. Be silent. Here's the thing about our deliverance and salvation. We're not soldiers 
fighting and battling out our deliverance. We are merely spectators who turn our eyes to see God at work delivering us, seeing our God fighting on our behalf. We watch Him work for us. Well, let's look at the second thing about deliverance. It's not just through an impossible situation. Deliverance is through a miraculous salvation. God tells Moses, lift up your staff, stretch out your hand over the sea, divided that the people of Israel may go through the sea on dry ground. Then verse 19, then the angel of God who was going before them went behind them and the pillar of cloud went behind them, which blocked the sight of the Egyptians from seeing the Israelites. Then Moses stretched out his hand and the Lord drove the east wind so that the waters were divided. Moses here is God's representative. He's interceding on behalf of Israel. Israel, they're doubting, they're complaining, they're not believing and trusting. Moses believes. Moses is trusting God. And through his faith, God works on behalf of Israel. Jesus, the Son of God, intercedes on our behalf. Though we doubt, though we waver in our belief, Jesus trusted his Father and works salvation on our behalf. And our deliverance is from a real enemy just like Israel. Don't miss verse 19. Then an angel went behind them. We sang uh, the song, Whom Shall I Fear? I know the Lord goes before me, the one who stands behind. The God of angel armies is always by our side. That song in, in verse 19 is reminding us that the battle Israel was fighting was not just against Egypt as a nation, but Egypt represented evil. Satan is the real enemy. Salvation is a cosmic battle. Kingdom of God versus the kingdom of darkness. We don't talk a lot about angels and demons today. Our culture is so skeptical of the supernatural. We talked about this some in our staff meeting this past week as we're kind of working our way through 1 John. How our battle is not against flesh and blood, but against the principalities and the forces of darkness. That's Ephesians, but we were in 1 John as we were talking about that. The Spirit of God versus the Spirit of darkness. And you know the spirits of darkness, they don't only influence people. They also influence structures of our society. Things like business and politics and education and the arts. Real structures. But there are invisible powers that work in them as well. And if you've read the gospel, then you know Jesus always assumed behind visible events there are invisible powers. That there's always more going on in our world than meets the eye. Have to be aware that there is a battle being waged, that we have a real enemy. So we stand firm and we pray for our awareness to behold the God who delivers us. Verse 22, the east wind blows. Israel walks through the waters, a, a wall on the left and a wall on the right. I mean, this, this is a miracle, but God uses natural means, the wind. Israel here is still unbelieving. They're doubting, and they walk through the waters. Now, you have to imagine, I mean, a, a monster wall on their left of water and a monster wall on their right of water. They're still full of fear. I, I, I bet they're thinking these walls are going to collapse on us in any moment. We're going to drown. We're going to die. Israel was free, but they didn't see themselves as free. They had to pass through the waters to experience their full deliverance. Now, you've got to catch the order here. 
God works his deliverance, his salvation first, and then Israel believes. God works, and then they follow with faith. This makes Christianity Christianity. This order does. We don't believe, so God works. God works, and then we believe. Look at the miracle again. This pillar gets between Egypt and Israel, and Israel passes through the waters. God removes the cloud. Egypt can now see, and so they're going to pursue Israel. The Egyptians get caught in the mud. The chariots have issues, and all of a sudden, they just start piling up in the middle of the Red Sea. I mean, it's a fiasco, and Moses drops his arms, and the waters flood, and the Egyptians are drowned. Donald Bridge tells the story of a, a liberal minister, a minister who doesn't believe the Bible's inerrant uh, and infallible, uh, that this minister was preaching in an old Bible-believing a church that believed the Bible was in, inerrant and trustworthy. It was this Bible-believing rural church, and at some point in the sermon, the minister referred to the crossing of the Red Sea. Praise the Lord, someone shouted, taking all the children through the deep waters. What a mighty miracle. However, the minister didn't believe in miracles, right? So he said rather condescendingly, it was not a miracle. They were in a marshland. The tide was ebbing and the children of Israel picked their way across six inches of water. Praise the Lord, the man shouted, drowning all the Egyptians in six inches of water. What a mighty miracle. A miraculous deliverance. That's true. It, it, it was a miracle. And it is our paradigm of deliverance that we were condemned because of our sin. And we pass through in this deliverance safe and secure because of our faith in the Lord Jesus. Here's another thing about this deliverance. is that it's a decisive act. Once and for all, not a process. At one moment, they look like they were dead. Backs against the wall. The next moment, they're bound for glory. At one moment, they think they're going to die. The next moment, they're journeying, belonging to God as God's beloved people. I was able to officiate a wedding yesterday. It was a 4 p.m. wedding. At 3 p.m., I was 3.15, was talking with the groom and talking about engagement. As we had gone through premarital counseling. And uh, At 4.15, they both said, I will and I do. And it was in that instant, husband and wife, one decisive act, I pronounce them husband and wife. Our salvation, brothers and sisters, is a once and for all final act. Once we weren't in God's family, now by faith in Christ, we are in God's family. Once we weren't righteous, now we're righteous. Once we weren't holy, now we're holy. Once and for all. And I hope and pray that gives you security and rest in your soul. That when you find yourself in an impossible situation, you're full of fear. That you know once God has saved you, you are forever eternally secure. Another thing about this deliverance is that God used what Egypt used for destruction as a means of salvation for Israel. Remember Exodus chapter 1, uh, Egypt drowned, they sent out this proclamation, drowned all uh, Hebrew male infants in the Nile, in the, in the waters of Egypt. And now God was using these very waters to bring salvation and deliverance. Tell me that's beautiful. That's the gospel. 
that God turns the means of death and the object of death for Jesus, the cross, into the very thing that brings us life. Pilate and Rome, they thought they were winning as they crucified Jesus to the cross. But the thing that seemed to be apparent defeat for Jesus became the means of our salvation. And this is how our God wins the battle, the cross of Jesus. It appears to be foolish to the world, but it is the power of God unto salvation. The cross of Jesus is the victory of God. It is the deliverance from sin and death. It is the victory over all powers and spirits of this world. In Christ, our God wins. So we always know, no matter what you're going through, no matter where you find yourself, God is fighting for you. Now You might need to pass through the waters for the first time today. But you've never experienced God's salvation and deliverance. And I would say, come, come and believe and come and rest in his salvation. And maybe you find yourself in a situation this week or it's felt like a longer time where you feel trapped. And you don't know how to get out of it. I want you to know that God's at work. He's, at with, he's with you and he, and he is sovereignly orchestrating all things to bring about your deliverance. I mean, if you noticed how chapter 14 ends in verse 31, it says, Israel saw the great power that the Lord used, so the people feared the Lord and they believed. They start, this whole chapter started, and they feared Egypt. And it begins with, and they feared the Lord. They weren't afraid of God. This wasn't afraid of, of God's judgment. This was, they were in awe of God. They had seen his strong right arm work salvation. And this is the chief end of our deliverance. The chief end of our deliverance is the awe and worship of God by the people of God. You realize throughout this book when God tells Moses to go and tell Pharaoh, let my people go, that he doesn't just stop there. He's not just let my people go. We, we would like that. Durham likes that. Let, let my people go, free to be whatever I want to be, to do whatever I want to do. But that's not the call for those who follow Jesus. Let my people go free to do whatever and be whatever. Let my people go so that they can come worship me. That's the chief end. This is humanity redeemed at its fullest. This is freedom at its fullest. Set free, delivered, so that we worship and glorify God. Christ central, God fights for you. God is fighting for you. Fear not. Stand firm. See his salvation. Be silent. And look to the God who's fighting for you. Let's pray. God, I pray that you would help us to trust and to believe when our life feels full of fear and we find ourselves in situations that we don't know what's going to happen. The Lord, you're orchestrating things and you're at work in such a way so that, so that when we experience your deliverance, only you get the glory because it's not about us, it's about you. So may we see Jesus who endured the cross to set us free so that we can worship you. Pray this in Jesus' name, amen.